The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I want to invite you this morning, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. We'll give attention this morning to verses 1 through 7. You may not realize it as you're turning to Luke chapter 12, but if you've been trekking with us in this study through the Gospel of Luke, and if you've looked ahead to the end of the book, you'll realize that as we hit chapter 12, we hit the midpoint of the Gospel of Luke. There's 24 chapters, and we are dead in the middle of our study. Luke chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1, Luke records this. He says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, First, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. On a particular Sunday, a particular Sunday morning, there was a deacon who walked into a children's Sunday school class And he posed a simple question to the students. He said, kids, why do people call me a Christian? The children thought for a moment, and one little brave boy raised his hand in the back of the room, and he said, maybe it's because they don't know you. (laughs) Not exactly the answer the deacon was looking for, but it does introduce the theme of our message this morning, that of hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we are not. This is the third week that we have addressed this same issue. Now, I'm not sure why it's taken us three weeks to address this issue, other than Luke spends considerable time on the issue. And so we are as well. And I want to, really, before we dive into the text, I want to I want to remind you of something as we think again for the third time now about spiritual hypocrisy and really this morning the opposite of that spiritual integrity. Um, I want to remind you that there is a sense in which every single one of us is a hypocrite. Is that not true? There is a sense in which all of us are hypocrites who proclaim to be followers of Christ. If by that we simply mean that none of us are able to live out our faith perfectly in every way. 
And I know that that's true of you, just as it's true of me. We are not able to live out perfectly the faith that we proclaim. All of us, to some degree or the other, embrace and proclaim truths that we don't always successfully live. All of us believe things earnestly that we don't consistently practice. If perfect application of biblical truth were some sort of a requirement for teaching and for preaching, there wouldn't be anybody who's capable and qualified to teach or to preach. Certainly not me. To some degree, all of us understand and join in with the experience of the Apostle Paul. Loving Christ, loving his word, genuinely seeking to follow him, yet still following short in a, in a host of ways. Paul expressed that in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, when he looked at himself in the mirror and he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We hear an apostle who is being painfully honest about his life, who understands the, the reality of the doctrine that he believes and the doctrine that he teaches and looks at himself and realizes with very, a very sen real sense of clarity that he is not a man who lives perfectly the things that he preaches. That there are, in fact, many good things that he wishes he was doing that he's not and that there are evil things that he wants to avoid that still tend to dog his life. We understand that, don't we? We understand what it is to be locked in a battle internally with sin. We understand that there are good things that we want to do that inevitably we don't do. You understand that there are evil things that you wish you were never doing, but somehow or other you keep doing them. You and I, we see this disconnect. This disconnect between what we believe and even what we preach and teach and what we're able to actually do. We see that disconnect and we grieve it. We battle it. Like Paul, we long to be free of it. We confess our sin and we come before the Lord with repentant hearts and we strive for holiness. And we are imperfect. To some degree or the other, we all engage that battle all who proclaim Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, if, if, if that resonates with you and you understand that, and that is your regular experience, this is not what Jesus is addressing at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 of Luke's gospel. This is not the kind of hypocrisy that he's addressing. He's addressing a different flavor of hypocrisy, if you will. A hypocrisy that is modeled by the spiritual leaders of Israel in the first century, the Pharisees, to whom he was just previously speaking at the end of chapter 11. It's a settled sort of hypocrisy. It's a hypocrisy that puts on this, this big public show on the outside, but on the inside is really vile and corrupt. It's a heart that loves sin 
There's no battle going on on the inside. There's no struggle with that sin. There's no pushback happening in their life. There's no grief over it. There is no repentance that's taking place. There is no confession that's taking place. There is a heart that pretends to be holy on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside is in love with his sin or with her sin. And perhaps is even convinced that they're righteous, completely self-deceived. That's what the Pharisees were. They were fakes. They were frauds. They, they pretended to be faithful, but they were not. They were utterly apostate. They were corrupt. They were completely self-deceived. There is no confession. There is no repentance. There is no battle with sin. They are a perfect example of spiritual hypocrisy. Exalting themselves as God's most holy men, when in fact they did not even know God to begin with. As we've seen, they're enriching themselves and they're crushing everybody else. And they're using God to accomplish all of that. Well, in contrast to that kind of a life, God calls his people to live with a, a spiritual integrity rather than a spiritual hypocrisy. The simple definition for integrity is the quality or condition of being whole or undivided. He calls us to live spiritual lives that are whole, that are undivided. Uh, we're to be people who are on the inside reality that matches what we were claimed to be on the outside. We're, we're to be people who are consistent, who are undivided, who are not, as James says, double-minded. We're to be people who are not perfect and not people who even profess to be perfect. People who strive for holiness. People who do battle on a regular basis with the flesh. When we sin, we don't hide, we, we, we don't obscure, we don't excuse, we don't blow off the problem. We confess our sin, we repent, we look to Christ to be merciful and to forgive us. It's a life of spiritual integrity. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus confronts spiritual hypocrisy in the lives of the Pharisees and the lawyers to whom he's having a lunch the beginning of chapter 12, the theme rolls right over, but Jesus turns his attention from the hypocrites to his followers. He ends the conversation with the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he turns to speak to his followers, to his disciples, to the 12 who were with him and the broader group who were following him. He has a message for them as well in light of what he's just said to the religious leaders of the day. And what I want you to see in what Jesus said really are, are three motivations to live with spiritual integrity. He's going to give them three reasons to not live like the Pharisees and the lawyers. He's going to give them three reasons why that is the most foolish way any human being could ever live. Three motivations, if you will, to live an undivided life, a life of spiritual integrity begins in verse 1. He gives us a bit of a context here, Luke does, as he often has in this gospel. He tells us that many thousands had gathered, and the, the, the crowd is really large to the point where people are trampling one another. The word that's, that's translated thousands here is a word that means literally 10,000, and it's plural. So it indicates to us that the crowd is not just a small crowd now. We're talking about tens of thousands of people who've gathered 
perhaps 20,000, 30,000, maybe even more. It is a massive audience that has collected now around Christ. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are there, and they're pressing in to hear what he's talking about. He clearly didn't have the advantages that we have today. He didn't have one of these fancy deals to put over his ears, to go around his mouth, to be able to project his voice so that 20,000 people could hear him. So you can imagine the crowds are, are pressing in, nearly trampling one another to get close enough to be able to hear what he has to say and what's going on. It would have been a scene that was somewhat chaotic, some kind of a mob scene, people trampling each other to try to get to the front. Within this group is a, is a mixture of people, most likely. There are within this broad group of people, some who are sincerely following Christ, some who are very interested in what he has to say because they have believing hearts and they are following and interested in what he is teaching. Some, however, in the crowd, as we've already seen, are hostile and their intentions are evil. They are simply there not because they want to hear what he has to say, not because they believe anything that he's already said, but simply because they want to try to catch him in some sort of offense that they can use to accuse him, ultimately to discredit him. And then, in the same group, there's probably even a larger group of people we could just sort of call curiosity seekers, right? Whenever there's a big thing going on, there's always people who just are sucked into the crowd because something big's going on. They want to know, I wonder what's happening over there. Somebody was finally standing up to the religious leaders, to the, to the Pharisees and the lawyers, and Jesus said some really offensive and egregious things to them. So I'm sure that folks were interested to see, where's this all going to go? Like, nobody talks to them like this. How's this going to play out? So in this crowd, you've got this mix of people, and they're all there. It doesn't tell us that Jesus took his disciples off somewhere else by themselves like he does on other occasions. He simply turns his attention to them, and the broader crowd is still there, mobbing whatever they're doing. But he speaks to his disciples. His audience changes, but his theme remains the same. In light of what he just said to the hypocritical leaders, he issues a warning right out of the chute to his followers. He says, beware, beware. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. The word beware is a simple word. It means exactly what you think it means. It means pay attention. It means watch out. It means be careful. It means there is imminent danger in front of you, and you need to not be asleep at this moment. You need to pay close, close attention to what's happening around you. You need to be paying close, close attention to what's going on inside of you. You need to be paying close, close attention to what I'm saying because there's a real and present danger. There's a threat that is at your doorstep, and if you're not careful, if you're not on guard, It's going to infect you. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is a a very vivid illustration that Jesus used, and it's uh, an illustration that simply is symbolic of the corrupting sort of potential of these Pharisees. Everybody in the first century knew how to bake bread. Now, we couldn't say that today, right? How many of you have baked bread before? Okay, some of you have baked bread before. How many of you bake bread all the time? Okay, a few of you bake bread all the time. Now I know who to visit. Um, <laughs> most of us buy bread at the store that somebody else baked. For the first century, everybody baked bread. It was the only way really to get baked bread. You could 
bake it yourself. And so everybody understood the process of baking bread. You took a little piece of the last batch of dough that had the yeast in it and you mix up your new dough and you take that little that little leavened piece of starter and you mix it in with the new dough and you knead it and do whatever else you do as a baker. You can see I've never made bread. And you set it in a cool, dark place. And while that, while that lump of dough sits there, something happens. Something takes place inside the dough. All those little microorganisms that are, that are, that are in there because of the yeast begin to multiply and they begin to spread throughout the dough and ultimately causing it to rise. Eleven. It starts in a little, little piece of starter before very long. It permeates the entire, the entire piece of dough. And the symbolism is very, very vivid. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's symbolic of something that's seemingly small and spread sort of silently, but very, very pervasively. There's something going on with the Pharisees that is like leaven, and you need to be aware of it. You need to watch out for it. You need to be very careful about it. And he doesn't leave us guessing what that thing is. He says, the leaven of the Pharisees is what? It's hypocrisy. The thing I've just confronted them to their face on is dangerous. It's not just a problem for them. It's a potential problem for you. And if you're not careful, if you don't watch out, if you're not on guard, just like leaven spreads throughout the dough, that hypocrisy will find its way into your life and it will permeate everything that you say and do. You need to watch out. Why do they need to watch out for, for this problem? Well, he doesn't tell us specifically why. Maybe there were some temptations that were in front of them at the moment. Maybe because of the, the, the increase in, in Jesus' popularity and the massive-sized crowds that are being drawn, maybe the big crowds themselves presented some sort of temptation to hypocrisy. When preachers and teachers amass big crowds and they do things that, 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 that seem successful in the eyes of the world, there's a real temptation to begin to operate not out of truth and honesty, but out of doing whatever it takes to maintain the crowd. So maybe that was part of the temptation in front of them. Or perhaps it was that Jesus understood the brewing opposition that was coming from the religious leaders and he knew that this was just going to get worse and worse. And that the opposition was going to going to grow and eventually it was going to become a very real threat to all of his followers. Perhaps that fear of persecution was going to drive them toward a temptation, toward hypocrisy. He doesn't tell us exactly why, but he simply tells us if his followers are not on alert, if they're not paying attention, they can become just another flavor of Pharisee. And so he says, beware. And he says, there are three reasons, really. He doesn't say it this way, but it's what comes out of the text. Three reasons why they needed to be on guard against hypocrisy. Three reasons why they and you and me need to live lives of spiritual integrity. The first one is very, very simple and very, very clear. And it's simply this. We're to live lives of spiritual integrity because we cannot hide from God. You can't hide from God. The essence of hypocrisy, and it's very hard, is based on deception, right? 
That is the whole, that's the whole game of hypocrisy. It's deception. It's deceiving people to believe something about you that really is not true. It's a game of, of lies, but as one author said, it's a way of lying not with your mouth, but with your actions. The hypocrite convinces men that that, that there's something that they're not. They trick people. They deceive them. And some are very, very good at it. Some are very, very successful at their deception. And what happens when you live that way and you get good at deceiving people, one of two things can quite frequently happen. One thing is you begin to believe the deception yourself. And deception isn't now something that you're just doing to other people, but now you begin to believe about yourself something that is absolutely untrue. That's certainly clear of these religious leaders. Or if you don't believe that, you begin to believe that you're never going to get caught in your deception. After all, if I can do it one, two, three, four, five times and nobody's found me out, right? I'm good to go. I'm getting away with this thing. Well, Jesus here reminds his followers, you can deceive men, but you cannot successfully deceive God. You cannot hide from him. You cannot fool him. You cannot trick him. You cannot deceive him. You cannot pull one over on him. And he says it this way. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Men may or or may not ever expose the hypocrite. The hypocrite may be able to successfully keep a lid or a cover on their, on their deception and on their lies. But at some point or other, God reveals the truth. At some point or other, God makes known to everyone what is hidden for the moment. Eventually, the truth comes out in the end is the point here. He says it another way. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That sounds a little mysterious, but it's the same message that he just spoke, just a different sort of illustration to provoke it. The things that you've said in the dark. What kind of things is he talking about are said in the dark? He's talking about the things that are, that are said in secret. The thing, things that are, that are said when nobody else is paying attention and no one is listening and no one else can hear. Those secret schemes and the secret plans that the hypocrite builds that, that are out of sight of anyone else. Those things that he thinks nobody else is aware of, that nobody else can hear. They're said in the dark. Things that are whispered in private rooms. Our homes are a little different than theirs, but theirs had these walls that were made quite often of mud and some other sort of natural resources that thieves and other people could sort of dig through the outer walls. And so people built inner rooms that they would use sort of as storehouses for things that were valuable because it was much harder to get to that inner room. They also used that room as a place where you would go if you wanted to have a really private conversation that you didn't want anybody else to hear. You'd go to the inner room and you'd have a conversation the most secure place in the house, the, more, the most soundproof place. The things that have been said in the dark, Jesus says, are going to be heard in the light. The things that you whisper in the inner room that you think nobody's going to hear. I'm going to shout them from the rooftops at some point. Everybody's going to hear. The, the gig is going to be up. At some point... God will expose the hypocrisy of the hypocrite. 
You absolutely cannot hide from God. It's impossible. Throughout the history, hypocrites have deluded themselves otherwise and have convinced themselves that they can, in fact, do this to their own shame and to their own exposure and to their own judgment. You can go back to Jeremiah chapter 23 in the Old Testament. In the days of Jeremiah the prophet, this became a real issue. And God speaks to it, beginning in verse 23 of Jeremiah 23. He says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. The prophets in Jeremiah's day were lying prophets. They were not faithful prophets. They were lying and they were deceitful. They were not unlike the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were operating the same sort of way, acting as though their deceptions were hidden from God, just like their deceptions had been hidden from man. And God speaks through Jeremiah. He says, what kind of God do you think I am? Like, seriously, am I the kind of God that's far off, that doesn't pay attention to what's going on? Can a man hide himself away from me where I can't see him? Or do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Yes, God, you do. You fill heaven and you fill earth. And nobody can hide from you. In Ezekiel's day, the same thing is going on. Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, God Ezekiel records God speaking to him. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? I mean, it's a remarkable sight. You had the religious leaders of Israel who were supposed to be leading God's people to worship him. They're literally at the altar in the temple, at the place of worship, but they're not facing the altar of God. They're facing which direction? They're facing the east, and they're worshiping a false god of the sun right in the sanctuary of the one true living God. And what are they saying while they're doing this? The Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has no idea what we're doing. And all along you have the Lord saying, not only do I see it, Ezekiel, take a look at this. Do you see what I'm seeing here? These fools, they think I don't see what they're doing. But I see it all. They think they're hiding. They think God doesn't see But God brings Ezekiel and shows him. God is, if we want to use theological terms, omnipresent and he's omniscient. Omnipresent is just another way of saying what he says about himself in Jeremiah 23, where he says, I'm the one who fills heaven and earth. means he's everywhere. The psalmist says, where can I go to hide from your presence, right? He says, I go 
over here and there you are. I go over there and there you are. I go up and you're there. I go down to the depths. There you are. There's nowhere I can go and hide from you. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Where are the eyes of the Lord? They're everywhere. Where are you going to go? Where you're outside of his eyes. It's impossible to hide from God. Hebrews 4, 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account You see, the person who lives in spiritual hypocrisy uh, convinces himself of a, of a terrible delusion, convinces himself that they can get away with their hypocrisy and God isn't paying attention and God isn't watching and God doesn't see that they're successfully pulling off the sham with God like they're successfully pulling off the sham with men. And God says to his followers, beware of that kind of stuff. Do not live that way. Live a life of spiritual integrity because the truth of the matter is you cannot hide from me. I see everything. I know everything. And beyond that, I'm going to reveal everything and I'm going to judge everything. Everything that's hidden, I'm going to expose. And God sometimes does that in this life. And sometimes he waits until the end. We see examples of God's judgment on hypocrisy. In this life, we see it to some degree with King David when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet for his hidden abomination and his hidden sin with Bathsheba. He's living a hypocritical life. And God sends a prophet to expose his hypocrisy. What is hidden in the dark gets revealed in the light. David is a man of godliness and spiritual integrity, and the exposure drives him to repentance. But we see in the New Testament a couple called Ananias and Sapphira who are also living a duplicitous life. And God chooses to expose their hypocrisy. And he kills them on the spot. In our lifetime, we've seen God expose the hypocrisy of men and women who claim to represent him, but don't. From Jimmy Swaggart to Ravi Zacharias, examples far too numerous and discouraging for us to go through this morning. Sometimes God exposes the hypocrisy of hypocrites in this life. Sometimes he makes it known when the executive is cooking the books. Sometimes he makes it known when the Christian student is cheating, turning in other people's work. Sometimes he exposes the, the spouse who, who goes to church every Sunday and, and, and gives off this, this vibe of, of spiritual vibrancy when in fact they're abusive in their home. Sometimes he makes that known. Sometimes the thief gets caught. But not always. Sometimes he withholds judgment and exposure to the end, to the final judgment. The Bible makes very clear that every one of us will one day face the judgment of God. Every one of us will face him. And the reality of what we've lived, not the sham that we put off for everybody else, is what's going to be confronting us in that particular moment. 
There won't be any hiding from the truth. It'll be revealed and our lives will be exposed. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon writes this. The end of the matter is this. After all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul writes in Romans 2.16 about a day when God judges the secrets of men. Every hidden sin will one day be exposed. The hypocrite's lies, the hypocrite's gossip, the hypocrite's slander, the hypocrite's lust, the hypocrite's prideful conceit, simmering anger, greedy business motives, all of that stuff comes out because we cannot hide from God. We can't hide from Him. Let me ask you this morning, are you sitting here in this place and everybody around you looks at you and thinks, man, that's a, that's a godly man. That's a, that's a godly woman. And all the while, you know what's going on inside of you. You're living the life of a hypocrite. And you're thinking you're getting it past him. You think that he's not paying attention. You think because you haven't been exposed yet that you're not going to be. You need to hear me this morning. You cannot hide from God. He may let you go for a while. He may let you go for years. He may let you go until you breathe your last breath. But one day what's hidden will be exposed. And there'll be no hiding. Instead, Jesus says to his followers, don't live like that. Don't live under that foolish delusion. You cannot hide from God. Live in spiritual integrity right now because he sees you as you are. He knows you as you are. The best thing in the world you can do is be honest with yourself and with him and with everybody else about who you are. Stop trying to fool people into thinking that you're better than you are. Live a life of integrity and a life of honesty. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, what happens? You obtain mercy. You obtain mercy. That is wonderful news for you this morning if you're sitting here pulling off that sham in your life. You don't have to wait until God exposes that in you. You can right now stop concealing your transgression. You can confess and forsake it, and you'll find mercy. Or you can keep living a double-minded life. But you can't hide from God. There's a second thing that he tells us here, beginning in verse 4. The second reason that we need to live lives of spiritual integrity. Not only can you not hide from God, but God is more dangerous than men. He says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you who to fear. Fear him who, has, who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Just as a note here, it's the only one of two times in the New Testament where Jesus calls his disciples friends. John 15 is the other one. But he speaks to them in very tender terms here. It's clear that he's not condemning them. He's warning them as friends. The religious leader's hostility is growing. 
It's growing significantly. They have tremendous power. They have the power to excommunicate people from the temple. And if you get excommunicated from the temple, you're excommunicated from all of Jewish social, social life. You are excommunicated from the community. You are on your own and rejected by everybody. These men also have incredible political power. They have power to arrest and power to throw people in prison. And as we see with Christ, ultimately the power to get people killed. And the hostility of these men is beginning to grow and grow and grow and grow. And Jesus knows that that hostility is going to be unleashed on his followers at some point, And that there's going to be a very real temptation to, to, to falter in their courage, to be men who live in fear and who become hypocrites out of fear of man. So he wants to remind him here, you don't have to do that. Don't live a life of spiritual hypocrisy simply because you're afraid of men. Live a life of spiritual integrity because at the end of the day, God is far more dangerous than the men that you're afraid of. Far more dangerous. The worst thing a man can do to you is he can kill your body. I mean, men can do a lot of things to hurt us. People can do a lot of things to hurt us. People can do a lot of things to bring pain into our life. But the worst any human being can do to you or to, or to me is to kill us, is to execute us, is to end our life. Man's authority has no reach beyond the grave. Is that right? All people can do is kill my body. But you and I as Christians know that there's much more to life than just what happens here. God has made us eternal. He's made us to live forever. Our lives here are but a vapor compared to eternity. That's why he says things to us like in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a world that's here that's passing away and that it's only temporary. And when you love that, you're, li you're loving something that's going away. But God has made us to live forever. We live here for a little while, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, maybe 90 or 100 years if you live a long time, and then it's over. Something takes us out. We don't cease to exist at that point. We simply change realities. We no longer live in this temporary home that we live in now. We arrive at our eternal home where we'll spend eternity. And the only realm of, of authority that men have are the authority of life here lived on this temporary place. And the worst they can do is kill us. And then eternal life. But our life here is short compared to eternity. It's exceedingly short. I attended a funeral yesterday for the wife of a dear friend who also is a friend to Danielle and I. Um, uh, my friend Curtis Bostic, his wife, Jenny, passed away. One of the things that they shared at the funeral yesterday was something that she kept on her windowsill in her kitchen. It looks like this. Just a, They gave us all one when we were leaving. I thought it was a, a neat thing. It's a, a, a spool of twine. On the end of it, you probably can't see it there, but it, it's got a little tiny red tip on the end. And Jenny kept this in her, in her windowsill. She kept it there as a daily reminder that our lives compared to eternity are like this little tiny tip on the end of the spool. That's our life here. The spool is eternity. 
What happens to us here is minute compared to what life is there. And that's precisely the point Jesus is making here. All men can do is harm you here. All they can do is affect you in that little red tip. There is no reason to be afraid of men. You are made for eternity. Men can be dangerous, but God is far more dangerous. Don't fear them. Fear God, because after he's killed, he has the authority to cast you into hell. While all men can do is, is kill our bodies, God is far more dangerous. Read Psalm 50, and you can hear about the psalmist writing in these terms. He ends Psalm 50 with verse 22, and he says this, Mark this then, you who forget God. This is God speaking. Lest I tear you apart, and there be no one to deliver. What a terrifying picture of God. God not only has the authority to end our lives right here and the power to do it, but he has the authority and the power to cast us into hell forever. Forever. God is far more dangerous than any man you ever meet. The worst a man can do is kill you. God can kill you and cast you into hell forever. The word for hell here is Gehenna first the valley of Hinnom which is south of Jerusalem is a horrific place Kelly maybe you went there did you go by the valley of Hinnom yeah it was a place where in the history of Israel back during one of the seasons when Israel's leaders were apostate and leading them toward all sorts of false worship it was in this valley that the Israelites were sacrificing their own children in the fire to a false god called Molech under Josiah, the king, he transforms this valley into a place where they burn the garbage. And so by Jesus' day, that's what the Valley of Hinnom was. It was a place where there was a massive pile of just refuse and garbage filled with worms crawling in and out. And it was constantly on fire, just burning all of the refuse from the city. And Jesus uses that as an illustration for hell. place of burning refuse that never stops perpetual fire and punishment some people think it's satan that casts people into hell but quite frequently i mean quite clearly here jesus makes clear satan casts nobody into hell if somebody's in hell they're here but they're because god put them there as a judgment on their sinful life in fact if you read the bible you'll find that Hell itself was designed for Satan and his demons. And when the final judgment comes, he'll be cast there, the most prominent prisoner in that awful place. We're not to fear him. We're not to fear men. He says, you live a life of spiritual integrity because God is far more dangerous than any man. Don't be afraid of men. Their reach is very, very limited. But God can ruin eternity for you. Just um, a week, last week, I read a, an interview from 2006 from Dateline NBC. It was a televised, nationally televised interview with an Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong. If you haven't heard of him, that's good. Maybe I shouldn't tell you about him now. But the interviewer was asking him about hell. And here's what Spong says to him. He says, I don't think hell exists. It's the Episcopal bishop, by the way. 
I happen to believe in life after death, but I don't think it's got a thing to do with reward and punishment. Religion's always in the control business, and that's something people don't really understand. It's in the guilt-producing control business. And if you have heaven as a place where you're rewarded for your goodness, hell's a place where you're punished for your evil, and then you sort of control the population. And so they create this fiery place, which quite literally scared the hell out of a lot of people throughout Christian history. And it's all part of a control tactic. To which the interviewer says, wait a minute, you're saying that hell is actually an invention of the church? He says, yeah, I, I, think it, I think the church fired its furnaces hotter than anybody else. I think there's a sense in most religious life of reward and punishment in some form, but the church doesn't like for people to grow up because you can't control grown-ups. That's why we talk about being born again. When you're born again, you're still a child. You don't need to be born again. People need to grow up. He says, every church that I know claims that. We're the true church, and they have some ultimate authority. We have a fallible pope. We have the Bible, whatever. The idea that the truth of God can be bound in any human system, by any human creed, by any human book, is almost beyond imaginable to me. He says, I mean, God is not a Christian. God is not a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindi or a Buddhist. All of those are human systems which human beings have created to try to help us walk into the mystery of God. I honor my tradition. I walk through my tradition. But I don't think my tradition defines God. It only points me to God. I sat just two weeks ago with a man from an Anglican church here in Charleston, part of the group that split off from the Episcopal church just because of this kind of garbage. And he mentioned John Shelby Spong to me, and he said, this is why we can't tolerate being a part of the Episcopal church. As soon as I saw people listening to this kind of garbage, I knew the church was done. Bishop Spong may not believe, may not have believed in hell in 2006, but I guarantee you this, he believes in hell right now. Jesus clearly believed in it. And he says this, listen, the fear of man should never lead God's people to live hypocritical lives. Never. Never. As Christians, we ought to be the most courageous people, the most authentic people on the planet. We ought to be able, it ought to be able to be said of us like it was said of John Knox when he died. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of a man. Why? Not because we have some sort of a silly death wish. But we live because eternity matters most. And only God has authority over eternity. And so we fear him above men. We honor him above men. We respect him above men. If the Pharisees truly feared God, you know what they would have done? They would have abandoned their hypocrisy. They would have confessed their sin. They would have repented and they would have embraced Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who stood right in front of them and had come to save even them. And you and I would be wise to do the same thing. Jesus later said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet he'll live. My friend, let me tell you something this morning. I don't know about your life. I just know what I see on the outside. I see what you want me to see. Everybody else around you sees what you want them to see. Only you and God know whether you're living a life 
of spiritual hypocrisy or a life of spiritual integrity. But let me tell you something this morning. If you're living a life of spiritual hypocrisy, you need to hear these truths this morning. You cannot and you will not hide from God. And the God that you think you're pulling one over is far more dangerous than any man you'll ever encounter. And your eternal soul is hanging in the balance. And there is only one hope for you this morning, and that hope is the hope that stood in front of the Pharisees, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for your sins, who paid the penalty for your hypocrisy, who stands in front of you and says, you don't have to live like this anymore. Repent, confess your sin, admit your, your hypocrisy, turn from it, embrace me, bow before me, give your life to me, and my blood will cover in full the penalty for your sin, and I will give you eternal life. End the charade. Expose it all now because it's coming out anyway. Bow before me as your Savior and your Redeemer before you have to bow before me as your judge and executioner. That is the invitation that is before you and before me this morning. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words pierce us. They're piercing. We understand hypocrisy. We do. And just like the, 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 the followers that were with you on that day, we too have to beware and be on guard. That leaven of hypocrisy can corrupt our lives in a minute before we know it. Starting with something really little that becomes very big, and the next thing you know, our whole life is a sham. All people look at us on the outside and they think it's all good. They have no idea what's happening on the inside. But we can't hide from you. We cannot hide from you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit this morning, you would open all of our eyes to the reality of our spiritual lives. That we would not be deceived in hypocrisy but that we would be living lives of spiritual integrity, undivided, not perfect, not getting it right all the time, but a heart that is confessing and repenting and grieving and doing battle with our sin because we truly love you. Oh Lord, for the one whose life is a sham right now, thinks they've been pulling it over on you, open their eyes that they might see. Draw them right this moment, Lord, I pray by your spirit to repentance and faith in you that they might be free, that they might be redeemed. That rather than hell, their reward would be eternal life with you in heaven. Only you can do that work. And so we pray for it, Lord Jesus, for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.